Hello and welcome to Carmichael Clan Radio, the official podcast of Clan Carmichael USA. I'm your host, Scott Carmichael. On today's show, I'm joined by the Eagle Gate newsletter editor, Leah Hargrove, for an interview with Rocky Rager of USA Kilts. For many of you, Rocky may be a familiar voice, as he is the host of the very popular USA Kilts and Celtic Traditions YouTube channel. Rocky is also the founder and owner of USA Kilts in Spring City, Pennsylvania, one of the largest and by far the best kilt makers in the United States. In this episode, we talk to Rocky about how he got started in kilt making and talk about some of the considerations that a person new to wearing kilts should take into account when purchasing their first kilt. We talk about different types of fabrics, styles, how a kilt should fit, the different accessories that you might need, and a lot more. This one promises to deliver something new to everyone, regardless of how long you've been wearing kilts, if you've been wearing kilts at all. Also, this episode will be available later on the USA Kilts YouTube channel, so if you'd like to see all of our shining faces, you can watch us there too. Before we get started, I want to remind you all to visit Clan Carmichael USA's website at www.clancarmichaelusa.com to learn more about how you can get involved in Clan Carmichael USA. If you're not already a member, we hope you'll consider joining and becoming a member in what we feel is the best clan out there. Also, please consider making a tax-deductible contribution to the Clan Carmichael Scholarship Fund or the Clan Carmichael Restoration Fund. You can donate on the Clan Carmichael USA website under the Future tab at the top of the homepage. And while we're on the topic of reminders... Don't forget to use Amazon Smile when you buy anything on Amazon to help support Clan Carmichael USA. Amazon Smile donates a portion of sales to charitable organizations like Clan Carmichael USA. You can log into your Amazon account at smile.amazon.com and select Clan Carmichael USA as your nonprofit of choice. From there, a small portion of each purchase you make will be donated to Clan Carmichael USA. It's a really easy way to make contributions while you shop. I have done lots of my shopping for Christmas on Amazon this year, as we do most years, but this year is great because I'm also making donations to Clan Carmichael USA while I shop. Again, visit www.clancarmichaelusa.com to learn more about how you can become a member. And now, let's talk about kilts. All right, so Rocky Rager, welcome to Carmichael Clan Radio. I appreciate you joining us today. Thanks um, for having me. So some of the listeners in, will recognize your name. Uh, you are from USA Kilts, and yep. you have a a widely viewed YouTube channel. And you guys are leading the way in uh, putting out good information about purchasing kilts and uh and all kinds of things and scotch also but i really appreciate you taking the time to uh to join us on our small podcast so welcome not a problem thank you for having me and i don't think our i don't think our youtube channel is as wide as i would like but but thank you for having me (laughs) well it's uh you're doing you're doing well you uh get the lead on us but hey yeah let's uh let's start from the beginning i always like to to get a little bit about uh about you tell us how you got into uh, kilt making because it's not you know as an American it's not something that uh, is really common 
I imagine not a widely known skill. So how did you get into this? Um, in my in my mid twenties, I was just kind of uh, not in between jobs. I was just uh, basically trying to discover myself, and I was in a spot where I didn't really love my job, and a bunch of things kind of happened all at the same time. So it was one of those where I was like, "Hmm, I've always wanted to wear a kilt, and never had the guts." So I decided that I was going to go out and get a kilt. Um, and I've also come from a family of entrepreneurs, so to speak. Um, so it was one of those things where I never really wanted to work for somebody else. So it kind of both came to a head about the same time. And it was one of those like, you know, got my first kilt and I figured eh, you know, a lower end kilt. I can make this. So I started making them and getting better and better and better. And, you know, eventually quit my full time job and just did this full time and uh, evolved from there. That's cool. Did you, did you, so you said you got a low end kilt and you said you can do this. Did you start trying to make the kilt yourself or did you seek out some instruction? Yeah. How did you learn that? It seems like a complicated um, process. Yes. Um, I, I don't, we don't, we don't talk about some of the first kilts that I made. Um, it was very much a uh, trial by fire. Basically it was, uh, I was taking existing kilts that I had and then fixing them. And then we would we started wholesaling for another company, and I'm like, ah, I want I want to sew down the pleats, or I want to put belt loops on this, or I want to fix that. So I just mm -hmm. started improving on theirs, and you know, just with a, a simple home sewing machine that I convinced my mom to let me take. Um, so I just sort of got you know my feet wet in it, and then figured you know it it doesn't look that hard. The low end especially didn't look that hard. Mm -hmm. So I started playing around with okay, I'm gonna make this. I'll be able to do it. And then just kind of got better and better. And then as we grew, we started getting pipe bands who would come in and say like, hey, you know, we need these kilts altered or we need this fixed or whatever. So I started reverse engineering those mentally as I was working on them. And I got uh, Barb Tewksbury's book, The Art of Kilt Making. She's a friend of ours um, and started looking for hints and tips and tricks through her work. And then with my uh, engineering type brain, and, and I'm just constantly like, okay, well, how do I do this? How do I make it better? So I had to kind of reinvent the wheel the whole time and take little bits from here, little bits from there, and kind of Frankenstein my own design, <laughs> as it were. Um, but it's it's forced me through trying to figure it out myself to understand each part of the process and why you do certain things, why you don't do certain things, and you know, so forth. That's cool. That's actually really impressive because I know if, even if I'd had that same, uh, if I was at that same point in my life and decided I wanted to start making kilts, I'm afraid it would not have worked out that well. So that is, there is some, some skill involved, I'm sure. And so that's actually really, really neat. Um, I have you know, to say as somebody who sews a lot, Rocky, I'm really impressed because it sounds like you're doing it from, from looking at existing kilts and not having a you know, a, a pattern that has everything demarcated on it. Uh, what sort of, I'm just curious, what sort of visual engineering were you doing before kilts? Because, because working well, with fabric is a really complicated medium. Yes. Um, none. It was, it's, I say engineering type brain. <laughs> I <Type>. was, <laughs> yeah, I, uh, before, you know, I went to college for communications. I got out of college. I worked um, at a company called GSI or Global Sports Interactive. They made the Sports Authority, Athletes Foot, Dick Sporting Goods, made websites for them. Um, it eventually got bought by eBay. So when they moved, I worked in customer service, but that's where I kind of developed my my thought process 
and my my love hate relationship with customer service and angry customers and fixing problems, hmm. um, you know those type of problems. Then I went and uh, started working for a uh, a snowboard skateboard company called Blades Board and Skate, and then I started doing kilts on the side. Really, when I was there, essentially full time, and as that business was not having a great time and eventually had to kind of go into bankruptcy. I was about at the point where I was like, I'm going to give the kilt thing a full shot and let's go for it. And I just kind of jumped ship and said, all right, this is now full time. So I got to get really serious really quick. Hmm. And so all, all of the kilts are made in-house, right? Correct. Okay. We I have, thought so. Yep. From the low end all the way to the higher end. Um, it's, you know, we're still, you know, a team of essentially 10 or 11 kilt makers in the room, in this building, making hmm. kilts every day. Okay. Well, you know, tell me a little bit about, um, the reason or the, the whys behind your YouTube channel. I'm going to talk about that just real quick before we move on to talking about, uh, what a person would want in a kilt, but you know, what, what, what inspired you to start your YouTube channel and, and what's the, sure. what's the reason, the inspiration behind that? Sure. The the impetus of it was really uh, goes back to my customer service. Um, in in having sitting in a call center every single day, either talking about products and answering questions about products or dealing with problems, um, I realized like from the get that I did not. If if I have good customers, or excuse me, if I don't screw up, I don't really mm -hmm. have to have good customer service. So I just won't screw up. I'm going to do everything as, as well as I can do it. And then as we kind of uh, started aging as a business, I was realizing the pattern of the questions that we were getting. So we would always get questions about how do you put on a kilt belt or how do you put on a kilt outfit or how how high should your kilt hose be or little tiny like nitpicky type questions mm -hmm. that Americans or Canadians or whoever, people that are coming to us, our customers, they weren't, they didn't grow up with it. They didn't, you know, their dad didn't tell them how to get dressed in the kilt. They had to kind of figure it out for themselves. And that was me. Like, I didn't come into this with all that knowledge. I had to figure it out every step of the way through essentially an ins insatiable appetite for all things kilts and Celtic related. So <clears throat> what I ended up doing was I said, okay, I'm answering the same questions. I should just make videos. I'll make a few videos answering the top you know, 15 questions that we get. And then when somebody emails and says, hey, you know, how do you put on my kilt belt buckle? I can just say, hey, I have a very long descriptive video. Here's a link to it. Go check it out. I answer that exact question. And it's one of those things where it kind of, the uh, that was the aha moment. As I was doing those, I was figuring out like, oh, people need help with this stuff. People need a bit of guidance, and I can give them that in video form versus one-on-one-on-one-on-one -on -one -on -one -on -one, where I can actually just upload it and anybody can see this stuff. Saving everybody a lot of time, I'm sure. It's your business. <laughs> yep. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious, too, as you, you talked about seeing this pattern of similar questions come in, we also see a pattern in the demographics of, of who's asking these questions. Like, does it, does it tend to be younger men wearing kilts? Do you see older men? Is there a geographic pattern? <clears throat> It's, it's honestly, it runs the gamut. It's not, we don't have our, our customer, customer base as you were, or as it would, um, it really runs from mid twenties 
up till you know till death (laughs) we've we've literally had people say like hey you know i have terminal cancer i'm gonna die soon i need a kilt i want to be buried in it it's my first kilt but i want to be buried in it so literally runs the gamut um but a lot of uh, it's it's not really the demographic age demographic that needs help or doesn't need help it's people when they get into it they don't know anything they're kind of coming like tabula rasa they don't know what to they don't even know the questions to ask they know i want to look good how do i do it so we're starting from we're meeting the customer where they are so if they have more information and they know okay no i want to dress born and i want this tartan and i want that then we can guide them on that process but we have the majority of people just literally walk into the into the store or come into our website or or via email or whatever they're just coming in saying help what <laughs> i want a kilt help make that go and we're, okay so we we can help anybody in that same way well and that's actually the uh that was kind of my inspiration for reaching out to you to to ask about doing this interview was because I decided after it was late in the summer that I was, I was going to buy my first kilt. And I thought, well, I'm just going to walk into a store and buy one. Uh, I didn't realize how much goes into buying a kilt. And that's actually when I found USA kilts on YouTube and started watching your videos. And I learned that, that uh, there was a whole lot to learn. Uh, And so that was what I wanted to do was kind of go through this interview as if I'm a new customer walking into your shop and I want to buy a kilt. Um, and we'll kind of go over some things that uh, that you run into, some common questions, um, and just some things that I found out in the process of researching kilt buying and kilt wearing uh, that I wish I had known beforehand. Um, so, you know, if I'm walking into your sure. store in, in Spring City, Pennsylvania, right? Um, mm-hmm. And I have no idea what I'm doing. Um, I think maybe the first place we would want to start is is Tartan Choice. Um, I know there's lots of different kinds. Leah and I are lucky that we have our tartan picked out for us already with the Clan Carmichael tartan, which uh, I think looks uh, the best. But it's magnificent. It is very nice. But Sli- uh, so that's an bias, option. I'm assuming. Uh, no, I mean I try to be unbiased. <laughs> no, I mean I, yeah. um, that is that is an option. You have your clan tartans, but there's also military tartans and some that are just kind of. Uh, I guess you could say they're just kind of fashionable tartans too, right? Yeah. The when when somebody walks in and says or calls or whatever and says, "Hey, I need to get set up." You know what? What do I need? the The first thing any any company worth their salt should not be you know, should be asking the customer is, you know, doing a little bit of digging. You need to get into that person and what they want out of the outfit. So first question I'm going to ask is, is there a particular tartan you're looking for? So in, you know, in your instance, Scott, mm-hmm. I'd say Carmichael, obviously. So let's go look at the Carmichael tartan. So I'd pull up the computer and I'd use, I use our website kind of as a crutch. And I would say, okay, just type for type in Carmichael. And then it's going to pull up all the different Carmichael tartans from all the mills, any stock offering. So if there's a Carmichael Ancient and Carmichael Modern, for, you know, one from House of Edgar, one from Lock Heron, that'll give me a place to start. And I can, you know, show you what's on the screen and say, okay, here's Ancient, here's the Modern, here's the muted version. Which one do you like? And, you know, basically you point to the one you like and they will, or ones, and they will pull out the swatch books and physically show you the swatches. 
Now, when I say ancient, muted, weathered, modern, those kind of things, that's mm-hmm. the color palette of the tartan. So the Carmichael tartan would be defined by its thread count. So, you know, 58 green and then six yellow and then four more green and then four red. Da, 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 da. And you you stack those up across the warp and the weft. And that's the tartan. That's the design. Now, within the color green, you can use a lighter green or you can use a darker green. You can use an olive green. There's different shades that are available. So that's the color palette of the design. Modern is going to be a darker red bottle green, like a beer bottle, navy blue, those kind of colors, stark colors. Ancient is going to be a lighter green, like a, a like a light grass green, like a light sky blue. The red is going to be like an orangey kind of color. So it's it's the same tartan. It's just a different color version of the tartan. So that's where I start with most people is the tartan itself and kind of narrow that down. If you have a clan tartan, it's very easy. If you say, I want a universal tartan, or I'm a Stuart, as well as a Carmichael, as well as a Robertson, as well as this, then it kind of, okay, well, which, you know, is there a particular one you want to focus on? Or do you want one that's more green or more red? Then we can kind of narrow them down from there. The next most important thing after the tartan itself is what are you wearing the kilt for? The occasion. So if somebody says, I'm just going to be going to Highland Games and I just want to wear it to the pub, great. Then, you know, we'll show you the different options, but we're going to kind of take you towards the more casual type outfit. If you say, this is the kilt I'm going to get married in, I'm only ever going to get one kilt, I want to be formal, then great. We're going to show you some slightly different options based on what you're actually looking for. And try to like uh, maximize the the versatility of the outfit to mm-hmm. suit what you want to do now, as well as things that you might want to do later, and can kind of bolt on accessories as you go. Does that make sense? It does. And actually, you know, speaking of the mill, that made me think of something too that I had noticed when researching these things and looking into them. And I was going to ask you: Is there a right? So, you know, they're all making the same tartan based on that thread count. Is it incorrect to use a darker shade of blue or a darker shade of uh, green? I know the Carmichael's that I've seen and really the only Carmichael tartan that I'd ever really seen anybody wear was the ancient that was from, uh, I guess it's the one that Lockheran carries as opposed to House of Edgar. House of Edgar, I think, has a darker Carmichael tartan. Is one correct? and one incorrect or are they just different colors, but still the same tartan? The it's, they're both correct period. Okay. Um, the, the color variation, which, which car is correct? The red Chevy Corolla or the orange Chevy Corolla? They're both the Chevy Corolla. It's just a slightly different color. So it don't get hung up too much on that. Um, you really want to, when it comes to that, you just want to focus on which one speaks to you. If you like Lockheron's ancient color palette more than House of Edgar's modern color palette, mm-hmm. great, do that. Okay. If you like the, uh, if you like a going beyond Carmichael, if you like a hunting version of your tartan versus the red version of your tartan, like Robertson, for instance, has a Robertson red and they have a Robertson hunting. 
So if you want to be bright, bold, red, you know, uh, you know, stand out, great, get the red. If you're like, no, nah, no, nah, I, I prefer the darker colors, then great, get Robertson Hunting. And then within Hunting, you'll have the options of the ancient color palette or the modern color palette. And then it's modern is going to be a little bit darker. Ancient's going to be a little bit lighter. So there's no wrong answer. There's no right answer. There's your answer. Rocky, okay. I'm wondering, is there is there potential to have a wrong answer for what people shouldn't wear? Like, I mean, I kind of obvious one would be it's probably not a great idea to wear a clan tartan that you have nothing in alignment with. And <clears throat> definitely I would think that'd be true as well as like military tartans. But what would be some faux pas you might suggest to new kilt wearers? Sure. Like, don't buy this if it doesn't pertain to you. Sure. Um, it's, it, it is a mixed, very, very mixed answer. Um, there are, and, and there are different, uh, I'll say, schools of thought on the issue. There are people who will absolutely say, you, if you are a Carmichael, you should wear the Carmichael tartan and only the Carmichael tartan. There are people that would say, if you're a Carmichael, you should you can wear Carmichael or you can wear a universal one. Like today, I have on the American Dream Tartan, one of our universal tartans. So you could wear that or Carmichael. There are people who would say you can you should not wear a clan tartan that you're not associated with. There are other people who would say, wear whatever the hell you want. So it really does run the spectrum. And this is the thing that is kind of come to light a little bit more recently, to me at least, is the Scottish angle on it is they care a lot less about the little tiny minutia in certain things than we do. Um, we just we just interviewed uh, Sean, uh, Sean Takes America, a YouTube guy. Um, we've interviewed House of Edgar and you know, Lock Heron, a few different companies over in Scotland. And and when I get into personal discussions about them on what tartan do you wear as a Scottish man, I was actually shocked that, well, for my wedding, I just picked this one because I liked it. Or, you know, I'm a Gordon as well as this, but I like this tartan. I like my mom's tartan more than my dad's. Or I don't like my Scottish tartan, and I'm also, you know, have some family from Ireland, so I wear my Irish county tartan. So things like that, it's Americans, Canadians, the, the diaspora tend to be more fussy about wearing your clan tartan and only your clan tartan from an aspect. And this is kind of, it gets into the psychology, and I actually love this stuff. It gets into the psychology of the reasons why you're wearing it. Sean pointed out to me, he said, look, in Scotland, um, you know you're Scottish. You don't need to wear your clan tartan to feel Scottish. You wear a kilt to feel Scottish. In America, we're not wearing the kilt to feel Scottish. We're wearing the kilt or, or Canada or Germany or Australia. We're wearing the kilt to connect with our own family heritage, not Scotland necessarily, but with our own family heritage. So it's a different reason for getting into a different angle that we're coming at it that Scots don't understand the reasons why we wear things sometimes. And we would find it weird that they wouldn't wear, like, if your last name is Gordon, why aren't you wearing the Gordon Darton? Well, because I have Buchanan somewhere in the family tree and I just like that one better. Hmm. It's It's weird. It sounds really accurate too. I know when I was, and this may be me 
um, probably some OCD traits there. But I know when I was researching these tartans, it was like an endless rabbit hole that I couldn't get out of because I, I wanted it <laughs> to be perfect. And you're right. It was because I was trying to connect more with Carmichael than it necessarily, than it was with Scotland. Um, but yeah, I just, I, I felt like I had to have it perfect. And that's interesting though, that that's, that I'm at least not the only one who does that. Yeah. And I would say this, it's not that you're not connecting with Scotland as well, because sure. as someone with, with Scottish lineage, you are still connecting with Scotland, but it's through the lens of family versus mm -hmm. national pride of being, of actually being Scottish versus Scottish heritage. There's a, there's a difference and that's that's another nit that they like to pick is, you know, if you travel to Scotland, they'll say, well, don't say you're Scottish. Oh, I'm Scottish. My name is I'm I'm a Carmichael. You're not Scottish. You're Scottish lineage or you have Scottish heritage. <laughs> um, but Americans, Canadians, we kind of use it as shorthand for, well, yeah, but that's what we mean, because we have more of a salad bowl type country versus right. Scotland, which is much more homogenous. Yeah, no, that, that does make sense. Um, my wife regularly reminds me that I'm not Scottish when I tell her that. <laughs> um, but, uh, but no, I, I, I see what you're saying. And that does, that does make sense. You know, you mentioned also the occasion, uh, for wearing the kilt. Would that occasion dictate the, the different styles of kilts in terms of, you know, the, the five yard versus eight <clears throat> yard, is there a right or wrong there for um, a different occasion. If you're going to a Highland Games, is it, you know, what, what's the right thing to wear to the mm -hmm. to the to the right place? Um, no, there's not a there's not a right or wrong kilt, uh, like hard stop. There's sure. some the way I the way I phrase it to people in the store. You want to, the kilt is probably the most versatile garment you will ever own. I can wear a traditional eight-yard hand-sewn kilt to the Highline Games. I can wear it to change my oil. I can wear it to get married in. I can do anything in it. So it, I wouldn't necessarily change my oil in it because it costs <laughs> a lot of money. But you can wear it essentially as you know a pair of shorts anywhere. Now, the the lower end of the spectrum are casual kilt or you know other other companies, not just not just us. But the lower end of the kilt or low end of the spectrum, it is more difficult to dress them up. And by when I say lower end, I mean, you know, $50 kilt, $100 kilt versus a traditional like five or $600 kilt. Now, the nicer of a kilt you get, like a five yarder at like 350 bucks, it's still going to look good and very, very similar to a traditional eight yard wool kilt from the outside to the uneducated observer. So if mm -hmm. you're in a room of of guys wearing kilts, you know, most of them, 99% will not know, oh, that's a five-yard kilt, therefore it's less money or it's not as good versus my hand-sewn eight-yard kilt. Um, they're not going to, A, if they think that, that's that's a shame. <laughs> uh, B, it's they're not going to be able to tell the subtle differences like a kilt maker would be able to tell. I'd be curious okay. to know because because like i said i spend a lot of time working with fabrics and have an eye for things if someone approached you with two kilts you'd never seen before side by side and said there's a 500 mm -hmm. difference in these kilts what are the little details that would give it away for you <clears throat> um 
if there's a $500 difference, then one of them is overpriced. <laughs> now, well, no, yes and no. It depends if it's a $50 kilt and a $550 kilt. It's the material is the dead giveaway. <clears throat> there's There are different types of fabrics you can make a kilt from. Wool is the best. It's traditional. It's what's been done for hundreds of years. So wool is kind of the, the gold standard. Um, underneath wool, they're, they're in the non-wool type fabrics. There is polyester viscose or polyrayon. That's what we use for some of our low-end stuff. There's wool blends. There's acrylic. There's a polycotton. There's different types of fabric you can make kilts from. But anyone worth their salt worth their salt is you know really doing wool or the best that they can find in the lower end of the market acrylic you know one man's opinion acrylic is does not make a good kilt it's 50 bucks if that's all you can afford and that's what gets you to connect with your heritage and that's what gets you over the mental curve of okay i'm i'm just going to try it and i don't want to spend that much money fine do it it's not that bad but if it gets you into the market, but or into into the heritage, but you will want to upgrade then, you know, after you've done it, after you've worn it three, four, five times, and you realize, okay, I can wear this out. I will wear this to date night. I will wear this to church. I will wear it for my wedding. Then you start thinking, all right, maybe I'll get a nicer one. That's why I always say to people, start with the nicest kilt that you can afford. You don't want to mortgage your house, but you do want the nicest kilt you can afford because that's the core. That's the base of the outfit. And if you start with a good kilt, you can dress it up or down. But in the lower end, it's more difficult to dress an acrylic kilt up for a wedding, let's say. You know, since we're talking about uh, fabrics, um, I know there's different weights of wools mm -hmm. also. And now I'm going to go ahead and guess there's... I'm kind of catching on to the trend here that it may not, there may not be a right answer for this, but is there a correct weight to wear to certain, is it a weather dictated thing or is it a more, more <laughs> traditional or formal kilt would be a heavier weight? What's, how do you pick a weight in the fabric? Sure. Uh, the wool from Scotland comes in essentially three. You can, you know, you can go a little bit heavier, a little bit lighter, but the, the the material that like La Karen, House of Eggers, Strathmore, Martin Mills, the ones that they the weights that they are selling, typically ten or eleven ounce, and that's generally considered women's wear, i.e. kilted skirts or you know or or hostess skirts or Fiona skirts, things that a lighter weight fabric and a softer fabric would do a little bit better for. Women shave their legs. You don't want to get too itchy, um, so a lighter weight fabric is a little bit better for that. Then you have 13 ounce, which is what's considered medium weight. And then you have 16 ounce, what's considered heavyweight. <clears throat> some people or some companies will have a very firm opinion on this is the weight of fabric that you get. You only get 16 ounce, that's it. Anything mm -hmm. else is, you know, if it's if it's not 16, it's crap. Um, other people want something a little bit lighter weight or you know, medium weight, 13 ounce, because maybe they live in Florida or maybe they live in Texas and they're going to be doing events outside during the summer. And 16 ounce is just a little bit too much. It's a little bit too warm for them. So, you know, there's, there's different horses for different courses. You can get a medium weight or a heavyweight kilt. We tend to shy away from 
people getting an 11 ounce kilt or a 10 ounce kilt because mm-hmm. it's a little bit too light. It doesn't hang and swing quite as nice. Um, but it's different horses for different courses. And then you also factor in the yardage of the kilt, whether it's an eight yard kilt, whether it's a five yard kilt and you know, a, a, let's say a, a, a five yard, 16 ounce kilt, maybe similar in weight and feel to an eight yard, 13 ounce kilt because of more yardage, but less weight. Does that make sense? It does. It does. Is I... there... Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was going to ask just real quick, since we're talking about the, the yardage, if I'm this, you know, customer coming in and I don't know to get a five yard or an eight yard kilt, um, how do you decide that? Is it just, or, or what is that? What is the difference? I actually wondered that is, is the difference in the pleating or is the difference in where does that occur? That seems like a lot of fabric to just shave off and still have a complete kilt, but how do you choose between the two of those things? Sure. Um, a, a five yard kilt typically, and I'm giving you customer rationale in this as well. Right. There's a couple of reasons why someone would want a five yard over an eight yard. Um, first, the five-yard kilt is going to be less expensive. It's There's less labor involved in making it, and there's less fabric involved in making it. So if you think of it this way, for your kilt, you know, it's when, you, when you're putting on a kilt, you have the under apron and you have the over apron. Each of those is, for rough math, let's say it's a yard each. In a five-yard kilt, you have one yard, two yard in the front, then you have three yards stacked up across the back. In late yard kilt, you have one yard, two yard on the front apron, and then six yards stacked up across the back. So it's there's a little bit more balance in a five yarder, which is nice, mm. but you're sacrificing the amount of fabric. Therefore, the face of the pleat, the part that you actually see, is going to be a mm-hmm. little bit wider than on an eight yard kilt with the same measurements. The depth of the pleat is going to be shallower on a five yard than it is on an eight yard because it's you're you're taking math and just balancing things. So if you're sacrificing, you know, uh, the amount of yardage, then the depth of the pleat, the face of the pleat has to also be sacrificed. If you have more yardage, then you can get a kilt pleated fully to the set. You can get a kilt with deeper pleats. You can get the narrower face on the pleat. So there's mm-hmm. there's trade-offs. And one of those trade-offs is the cost as well. Right. And that actually that actually answers my question really well too because it makes total sense that, and that's what I wondered is if it was just a difference in how they, you know, fit all the fabric into the back into the pleats, or if it was somewhere else. So I, I do I understand what you're saying. That's cool. If never, you the, go ahead. I'm sorry. I was going to say I've I've never worn an eight yard kilt before, but I, I mean, imagine if you have sixteen ounce wool and six yards of it on the back of your hips. It, it would be a little bit of an adjustment to wear, I would think. I mean, like for a female, that would feel like wearing a bustle, you know, like a lot of weight on the back. Uh, is what, What's that like for a man it's, the first time putting that on? It's uh, a, it depends. Is it an off the rack kilt or is it one that is tailor made for you? If a kilt is properly made, it is, you know, men, believe it or not, most men have hips. So Somewhere. it's the the kilt is still meant to sit, you know, kind of think of it as a an, an inverse cone or as a cone. Yeah, inverse cone. It's it's meant to sit on your hips. So it tapers in the upper portion of the kilt, basically what's called the fell. So the widest part of your butt up to just above your belly button with a part that's actually sewn down. 
that is tapered to fit you. So it doesn't it it shouldn't feel like it's like you're you're leaning back and it's pulling you backwards kind of thing. That would be odd. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, that does make sense. So, because it would be snug on you, and so the weight would be distributed evenly around your your hips, your midsection. Correct. Thank, yeah, thank you. That's helpful. Um, yeah. I have a, another question you mentioned earlier about different horses for different courses. Uh, let's just assume the horse is a different gender here. So, um, increasingly over the past ten years, when I visited games, I see uh, women wearing kilts you're not not pleated skirts now but but full-on kilts with sporns um and my personal opinion it's not my favorite i like men to have their thing and to look really good but we haven't really filled the gap with something that looks really good for scottish heritage women um what sort of things do you generally um see women coming in to purchase tartan material with um and and what what do you think is really good is there anything new being developed that women could get excited about wearing sure um women's women's fashion is much more forgiving than men's so let, let's start let's define kind of the the typical things that a woman would wear in in expressing her heritage in tartan a hostess skirt and a kilted skirt are very similar a hostess skirt is essentially an ankle length kilt with you know shallow pleats pleated across the back front apron flat a Kilted skirt is like mid-calf length, below the knee for sure, but mid-calf length, similar type construction. A Fiona skirt is pleated all the way around. And then for women, and that's essentially mid-calf as well. And then for traditional, you kind of, not really traditional at this point, you jump above the knee and you have a mini kilt. And a mini kilt doesn't have to be a micro mini. It can be just, you know, a few inches above the knee. Increasingly, um, what I have found is that uh, women bagpipers obviously have to wear a kilt because it's part of the uniform, a a traditional to-the-knee man's kilt because it's part of the uniform. But we get a lot of, um, let's say, women in their 50s is kind of where it starts, where maybe they're fun, outgoing, upbeat kind of gals, but... They don't want to do a, a a matronly type skirt or something that is below the knee because they, they want to be freer and jumping around and dancing and stuff, but they don't they maybe feel a little bit self-conscious because of age and may think it, well, maybe it's age inappropriate to wear a mini kilt at 55. Maybe I should just do like a knee length one or something that's around that area. To to my trained eye, it looks a little more masculine. Yes, because that's where a kilt should be is, you know, on a man to the knee. That said, women are going to do with what women are going to do, and they're going to play with it a little bit as a fashion-y way to express heritage, where men are coming at it more directly from a heritage-type angle, so they don't really play with the length as much. And again, in you know, it's just the way society is in general, um, it's... A kilt is a knee-length garment worn by men versus women who are going to, you know, do what they want to do with the fashion of it. Sure. Thank you, Rocky. A very diplomatic answer. Well done. (laughs) (laughs) It's well rehearsed. It actually leads well into my next question, too, because that was that was sort of a. uh, uh, I don't want to say a pet peeve, but it was something I noticed a lot. I was uh, at the Stone Mountain Highland Games 
in what was that September October October and yeah and I noticed a lot of men's kilts um, below the knee <laughs> and so I rushed right to my phone and googled where should the kilt come to and I was pretty sure it was supposed to be at the knee uh, is it is it you know can you take us through I don't want to get too deeply into the fit of a kilt sure. but you know like tell us where the kilt should be pulled up to for one thing like where do you wear the kilt at your you know at your waist i know it's fairly high as you know mm -hmm. uh, compared to what people are used to with normal pairs of pants <laughs> but where does the kilt need to come to because i've seen a lot that go pretty low it seems like you you tell us on on, on that where does it need to go sure um uh, a few things i a for all of this let's assume that you're you're having it custom made if you're buying something off the peg, then either you may have to have it hemmed or you have to wear it a little bit lower if it's too short on you, that kind of thing. So it, what we do, the beauty of what we do is that I don't have to worry about that. We just make everything custom. Right. So and now <clears throat> let's start with the top of the kilt. A traditional kilt is worn above the belly button. You have, you know, the top strap and buckle on the kilt should be at the top of the hip bone, which is essentially in line with the belly button. So if you take your, you know, put your finger in your belly button, draw a line over to the side of your body and kind of jam your thumb into the side of your body, you're going to feel a bone right there. That's actually your hip bone. So a traditional kilt, you cinch the top straps on a traditional kilt right there. And if they are cinched right there, it's not it doesn't move because it's on bone, so it won't fall down. Now, that is high for a lot of guys because on top of that that top strap, you have two inches of rise, what's called rise, which is above the top of the strap. So that's just the portion of the kilt, the very, very top bit. Um, so what happens is it ends up above your belly button. And for a lot of guys who've grown up wearing pants, never wearing a kilt, you're, it doesn't matter whether you're your 20s or your 50s, um, it feels a little weird wearing your kilt or wearing something that high the first time you do it. You feel like an old man down in Florida, kind of with his, his pants up around his nipples. So what ends up happening is some guys will say, well, I, I'm, I would rather wear it a little bit lower. So we can do that and we have to kind of monkey around with the way it's constructed to some degree to make it fit properly a little bit lower, but it, it can be worn a little bit lower. But you need to know that when you're placing your order because you don't want to have the kilt. If I'm measuring from above the belly button to the middle of your knee, if you wear it lower, now the kilt's going to be too long. So you have to start with the top of the kilt where you want to wear it and say, okay, this is where you're going to have to wear it because this is where I'm measuring the overall length from. Now, for the the other end, where does it? Where should it stop? Down around the knee. <clears throat> Way back when, it was worn, fashionably worn, and practically worn above the knee. If you're walking, you know, through you know high grass in the hills of Scotland, walking through heather and stuff, and it's you know the bottom of edge of your kilt is getting wet. As you walk around, that wet wool fabric in a heavier weight of cloth would have kind of sawed at the back of your at the back of your legs on that sensitive mm -hmm. skin back there. So in order to get around that, you wear a little bit higher and it's not hitting you at that sensitive spot. Now, over time, 
it's kind of come down a little bit. Traditionally, it was, let's say, an inch or two above the knee. Then it kind of came down to the top of the knee. Today, the 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 cheat for how to measure for your length is you kneel down on the floor and the kilt should just be brushing the floor or a touch above the floor. That would be about mid-knee. In Especially, I've noticed in America, what happens is you see guys wearing the kilt at the bottom of the knee or just below the knee, and that's partially probably a self-conscious thing of, I don't like the way my knees look, um, or it's you know guys in their in their forties who have grown up with uh, you know wearing longer shorts want to wear something a little bit longer so they don't feel comfortable wearing it middle of the knee so there's different rationales or back to what I said earlier if it's not a custom kilt if I am five foot eight and I go to a Scottish festival and yeah. the the vendor there has a kilt and it's acrylic and it's one length fits all. 24 inch length you put that on it's going to be too long Mm -hmm. so that may be why you're seeing guys with kilts too long at a festival those are good those are good theories i think that's probably more accurate than my theory i thought that maybe these (laughs) maybe these people bought their kilts uh at an earlier age and maybe had attended too many festivals and they're uh they couldn't get the kilt up to the above the belly button point anymore so i guess that that could force the kilt lower also in the front so Mm-hmm. Um, it's just reason to stay fit, I guess. One thing, let me jump back in here for one second. Sure. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> the one thing I'll point out as well, the kilt when worn properly above the belly button is very, very flattering, especially on bigger guys. If you are mm-hmm. a man of substance, as we say, mm-hmm. uh, a bit, bit of girth, if you wear the kilt around the widest part of you, think of yourself kind of like an egg shape. If you wear it around the widest part of the egg, it will hang down straight from that widest point, and it will make the 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 profile and the front appearance much more flattering. If you try to wear the kilt under your belly like you do a pair of pants, what will happen is you have you know what we call Dunlop's disease, where you're okay. you got Dunlopped over the front of the kilt, and it pushes down on the front of the kilt, and your hips kind of bring it up in the back, so the kilt um, ends up kind of, you know, if you think of the person from profile view, it ends up kind of dipping down in the front and up in the back. So it's a bit of an angle. Um, and it just, it looks more uh, sloppy for lack of a better term. Mm -hmm. Um, so, but if you wear it around the widest part, it kind of tucks you in, holds, you know, holds it right there, holds it nice and firm and keeps, you know, just looks nicer all around. So I guess the good advice would be to a, to a, uh, you know, to a heavier person, is just to measure it accurate and and where it where it's supposed to be still, right? Correct. Okay. Can you take us through and this was something that I got, you know, speaking of the endless rabbit hole of kilt buying. Um and and actually it was uh a place this is the video that I discovered USA kilts on was the set versus stripe. How to decide between set versus stripe. And I realize this is probably a or it could be a lengthy discussion, but what's the, is there a rule of thumb on that or what sure. would be your your advice for choosing between the two? The um, let's, let's define it first for those that don't know. If you think of a tartan pattern, um, you know, and you have a, a, a white stripe 
at one pivot point and like, or think of like Royal Stewart, where you have a big red field and then you have a, a, a white stripe in the middle of a busy section. If you pleat it so that the face, the part that you see of every single pleat has that white stripe, or in the case of Carmichael, has that yellow stripe running down the center of every single pleat, then it would be pleated to the stripe. If the pleating pattern, the way you are pleating it, you advance one little section on the mm-hmm. on the pattern, you're pleating it to the set. So you take, instead of pleating it so that the stripe goes next to the same stripe, the stripe actually goes over top of that stripe, then you're pleating it to the set. Now, which is right and which is wrong? Neither. It is personal preference. The okay. The stripe tended to be a military thing. It kind of started with the military because if the kilt is pleated to the stripe, you can adjust the size of the kilt for different people and not have to worry about the pattern matching up and having a stripe dead center in the back or not, or having the belt loops slightly off. You just move the belt loops and then the stripes, it's all to the stripe. So there is no pattern in the same way. Okay. Today, if, as a... Go ahead. I was going to say, because if you're if you're pleading to set, if you're looking at it from the back, it's going to look the same as the tartan itself, correct? Correct. Okay. And and if it's pleated to the set properly, this there should be something, one element, one of the pivots dead center on the back. So in the case of, you know, again, back to Royal Stewart, if it's the white, either the white stripe or the red section would be centered on your spine. If you lose <clears throat> two inches or if you hand, you know, if you're giving the kilts a, a hand me down and the person is a little bit skinnier than you mm-hmm. and you have to move the buckles. Now it's not the white stripe and it's not the red section. It's kind of right between them is the center of the back. So if you pleated it to the stripe, you could just move the buckles and they'd never know it wasn't your, it wasn't made to your measurements. Now there's no right or wrong answer for how you have it pleated, but there are, some tartans that look better to the stripe than others. And to do that, to figure that out, I use what I call the Christmas tree test, where when you're putting lights on a Christmas tree, you kind of squint at the tree and you can see where there's more lights or where there's less lights. You do the same thing to the kilt or to the the cloth. You squint at it. And if there's a single element, um, like, again, that yellow stripe in Carmichael that jumps out, if Mm -hmm. one element jumps out, great. It would look great pleated to that stripe. If the tartan is a bit more busy and there's a lot going on and nothing really stands out on its own, then it's probably going to be better pleated to the set. Now, every kilt looks fine and great pleated to the set. In my estimation, not every kilt looks good pleated to the stripe. So I kind of discern which ones we would do or not do to the stripe. Okay. Do you find as the Kilt maker, is there are people usually choosing to go with set just because it's a you know I guess you could say it's a safer bet <clears throat> since all of them look good at, you know pleated to set is that what usually people are choosing? Um, it depends on it depends on the model. Um, the only the only model that we allow a choice on for us as a kilt maker is our eight yard kilts because with an eight yard kilt. Okay. There's plenty of fabric, so you can do it to the set. You can do it to the stripe. You have that choice. In a five-yard kilt, if this if the this gets into the the balancing act of the math, so if you have a five-yard kilt and the set size is let's say 
eight inches or nine inches. It's a bigger set size. You're going to, and you want it to the stripe, then you, the pleats are going to be really, really wide because you have for every, you know, for every pleat that you're seeing, the face of every pleat you're seeing, you're using up nine inches of fabric. Um, so it, a five-yard kilt, uh, as a kilt maker, we we call uh, cheating the set or you have to make up your own pattern within the pattern. It's actually a lot more hmm. artistry, if you will, in a five-yard kilt than there is in an eight-yard kilt from a pleating perspective because you have to get creative with what you're doing where pleating to the set or pleating to the stripe it's very very easy to produce that you know on the sewing machine or by hand um does that answer the question it does and that had me thinking about the yellow stripe in carmichael where if you were wanting to order because i don't think the yellow i'm not sure what the thread counts are on our tartan but it seems like that if the, the the yellow stripe is not very frequently Frequent. appearing yeah and so it seemed like if you wanted a five yard kilt pleated to set with the carmichael it might not work because or at least if you were going to try to uh, pleat to that yellow stripe every time you would it would require too much fabric i guess it does make sense and and uh you know kind of <laughs> thinking thinking through the math of it all but it does it does make sense to me we've kind of uh the we have we've come up with an ideal scenario a ratio, if you will, a golden rule. Um, for us, the ratio when we're making a five-yard kilt is one to five and a half. So if basically for every one inch of of pleat that you see, we want to use up between five and six inches. So we average it and say five and a half. So one to five and a half inches of cloth is about the magic ratio so that you're going to get a pleat that's narrow enough that it still looks good and a depth that's reasonable enough that it's not too shallow and you don't get the nice swing of the kilt. So okay. it's, yeah, yeah. So you could, if the set size of the tartan is only six inches, it may be to the stripe. Uh, but if the set size is wider or you know eight inches or something like that, mm -hmm. then probably won't be to the stripe on a five yarder unless you want the face of every pleat to be an inch and a half or an inch and okay. three quarters, which okay. is a little bit too wide for, for our taste. Okay. Yeah, that does. I got you. That does make sense. Rocky, let me ask you a question. You mentioned uh, if somebody's passing down a kilt and it's not quite an even fit, so we have to move the belt loops. Mm -hmm. I'm just getting into purchasing kilt things because I have a nine-year-old son and he attended his second Highland games this year and he's decided that he mm. needs a kilt. Um, and I am not really sure what to tell him he needs with the kilt. We have, we have a kilt for him. We got him just cause he's going to grow, right? He's nine. He's going to grow mm -hmm. a lot. We got him a, a Stuart, you know, something he can wear all the time. And, and I'm not mm. personally offended if he rolls in the mud in it. Um, and then I went online to figure out what else does he need. And there are all sorts of things. Um, so I, I want to start with the belt because for me, even though the sporin is sort of the iconic thing you think of, the belt seems like the practical thing. Can you wear a kilt without a belt or is that a bad idea? Yes. The, um, <laughs> the, uh, in, in order of importance, so to speak, first thing you want to purchase is the kilt. The second thing you want to purchase is the sporin because you don't have anywhere to put your stuff. Kilts, traditional kilts don't have pockets. So that's what the sporin is for. That's where you hold all your stuff. Um, if you're going to wear a kilt out in the day, um, like to a Highland Games, and you're going to be wearing a casual, 
yes, I would buy a belt and I would buy a buckle. If I'm going to be wearing a kilt with a Prince Charlie jacket, like sort of something very formal, so you're going to have a dress sporin or and or a vest, then you wouldn't wear a belt. So it's that's where it kind of gets back to the question of what do you want to what do you want to do as the customer with the outfit, and then building the outfit for the, so that the customer has the most versatility and you know mix and matching parts that they can in an outfit. Um, the after the sporin after the belt, a lot of guys will get the kilt hose and flashes. That's the next things you would probably want to get so that you can wear. A, a kilt, you know, similar to like how I have it on today with a sweater and a kilt and then hose and flashes and sporin and no belt because I'm wearing a sweater that's going to cover up a belt anyway. So it wouldn't wouldn't matter if I'm wearing it or not. Does that make sense? It does, but I'm going to have you parse it out for me. So sure. I've got on the one hand, I've got my nine-year-old son and probably about the time he's 12 or 13, we could probably transition <clears throat> into like an actual nice Carmichael tartan. Kilt mm-hmm. that he could wear to Highland Games and and maybe family events like like funerals or weddings, um, or maybe maybe not a wedding. Let's not take it that formal yet. What would we? What would you recommend for sort of that basic, you know, like quality wear, but not quite formal? So we've got a kilt, a belt, a sporin. Sure. Is there anything particular about the hose and flashes that's different between formal and informal? Um, no, not really. Um, the only thing I would, um, uh, a lot of people there's there's a very heated debate. Um, about cream or white hose. Uh, it, basically, the 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 white hose. It, I'll, I'll I'll do I'll give you the quick overview, so not to bore you too much. Um, white hose essentially be, uh, started as a pipe band thing in Scotland in the 1980s, late 70s, and then kind of became the de facto hose that people would get with a rental or a higher outfit over in Scotland. So it kind of became weirdly de facto formal but old timers in scotland who were you know alive who had their own kilt had their own outfit would look at it and be like why would you ever wear white hose that looks so bad it's such a stark contrast to you know white legs and then a nice beautiful tartan kilt and then a black jacket and they would wear either diced hose or argyle hose or or a a a pair of hose that would like tone with a color in the kilt so Hose are, are one area. Then you want to do uh, for accessories that you can dress up or down. I'd say a pair of colored hose to tone with your kilt or to tone with what you're wearing up top. Like I'm wearing a gray sweater. I can wear gray hose, even though there's really no gray in my kilt. Um, kilt pin, you can, a lot of guys like it. It's nice little bling, adds a little interest to the front of the kilt. It is not really necessary it doesn't hold the kilt together it's just there essentially as a wind weight to help it from flapping around so much but it is only worn through the front apron it's not necessary necessary to wear a kilt um but hose flashes kilt belt and buckle and sporin are really the core of a nice casual outfit because then you can wear a sweater with it. You can wear a t-shirt with it. You can wear a polo. You can wear, you know, a, a, a dress shirt and a tie and a vest. You can sort of dress it up or down with the rest of your outfit, you know, up to a, a, a nice, a church kind of dress, not formal, but like a nice day dress. Yeah. A nice day. That, thank you. That's helpful. My uh, sure. nine-year-old 
told me the very first accessory he needed was a skin do, even though he didn't have a, an appropriate, you know, sock to put it in. He just needed one. So every, that- <laughs> every young boy will want a skin do. He'll hopefully mom doesn't know it's actually a knife and she'll let me have it. <laughs> yeah, he he made a a very impassioned case to wear it to school with his kilt, and I let him know that was probably not a good idea. <laughs> now, <clears throat> the difference uh, a I'm gonna. I, I think you said it right, but just for the listeners, um, the way you pronounce it, it's the, it basically skin do means black knife. Um, the way to remember it is like, say like skiing, but skin do. So you're kind of pronouncing the S G ski and um, do um, a skin do is the little, you know, let's say eight inch, blade that you would put in your well, sheathed but but little uh, eight inch knife that you would stick in your sock a lot of people use the word dirk for that a dirk is something different it's a longer knife let's say 18 inches or so that is worn on the belt you don't stick that in your sock it's a different weapon you know speaking of heated debates oh maybe you can elaborate a little bit about uh choosing the right sporin and I should I should tell uh, on myself before. So I I had decided that I wanted to be very flashy and wear a I'm I'm gonna go ahead and say I didn't do this, but I wanted to be very flashy and wear a white fur uh, sporin to the Highland Games with a very casual kilt. Um, as I have learned, that would be incorrect. Can you tell me more about uh, wearing sure. the appropriate sporin <laughs> to the appropriate places? Sure. And when, as an overarching uh, comment, I will say this. When it comes to Highland wear, mm-hmm. oftentimes less is more. So if I'm wearing, if I'm going to a, a daytime event or going to Highland Games or something like that, a plain black dress sporin or a brown, dr- or, excuse me, a plain black day sporin or a plain brown day sporin would be the appropriate thing to wear. When I say day sporin, picture in your head sort of a, a capital D and turn it so the flat parts on top and the round parts on the bottom. That's a day sporin. Next, you have what's called a dress sporin, which is sort of an oval shape. It is typically made with fur on the front and three you know furry tassels on the front, and then a metal semicircle, what's called the cantle at the top mm. of the sporin. That is typically only worn for you know after six formal type events. It is not should not be worn during the day. It's kind of like wearing patent leather shoes with <laughs> with a pair of jeans. It's it's it doesn't you know it, it hurts my brain. Something is just off. It's the person is trying too hard, so to speak. Yeah, that was going to be me, uh, but I'm glad <laughs> I, I'm glad I stopped myself and learned before I showed up doing that. I was. I thought it would be just cool and different, but later found out that it was just incorrect. That's, um, and again, back to the point of a lot of Americans and Canadians and those in the diaspora don't know what is you know, you know using you know what is conventional or you know right mm-hmm. using air quotes. Um, they don't know the traditions. They don't know how to do it, which is why you know. You know, places like your podcast, places like, you know, our channel on YouTube, those types of things are important to teach people who don't know and have no other resource to learn the the traditional way that it's done. You have right. to know the rules before you break them. If you don't know the rule, 
you just and you're breaking it you don't understand how good or bad you look you're just a a thrown together caricature of the culture versus being a sincere student of the culture and trying to do it properly. And then once you get the rules down saying, okay, well, I'm going to break this one particular rule and that's going to be my shtick. For instance, I almost never wear kilt pins. Almost never. I don't hmm. have one on now. It's just, it, it, I don't feel like it's necessary all the time. So that's my thing that I'm breaking a little bit with tradition, but it doesn't hurt. And I'm doing, you know, it, it's, it's the way it's my signature, if you will. So, yeah, it's it's learning the right way to do it and then kind of evolving your own style within it versus just throwing it together and playing Scott for the day. There's a it's a difference. It may be subtle to some people, but there is a difference. So there's like a, a Louis Armstrong of kilt wearing that the properly initiated can achieve. <laughs> well, and that's that's something as a. Uh... I spend a lot of time riding road bikes. I'm a, I'm a cyclist and there's, there are, there's certain rules in that sport also that you don't want to break. And it's kind of these things that you'd have to, you know, you're inevitably you'll show up to a group ride breaking some sort of rule like that. And so I was, you know, I wanted to be flashy and different, but I also had this, I also respected these rules that I knew existed. And, and, and that's why I was thankful to have found your channel also that kind of, uh, prevented me from being the person showing up doing these things. Um, you know, and speaking of, of, uh, things that you may or may not want to show up doing, like, what is the, is there a, what's the right footwear? So you're wearing a kilt today at the shop. What kind mm -hmm. of shoes do you wear with that? I, I, like the, uh, brogues, is that what they're called? Are they look sort of uncomfortable? I imagine that's not the only shoe you can wear with hose and with a kilt, right? Sure. Uh, the no gilly brogues are not the only where you sh only shoes you can wear with a kilt um it depends again back to the horses for courses um it depends on the event that you're doing and the context the context matters much more with what accessories what footwear what headwear all those types of things than just there's no bog standard this is the only one thing you're allowed to wear <clears throat> gilly brogues are a traditional type of footwear they're not as old as you may think but they're a traditional type of footwear that you can wear with kilts there are buckle brogues which i personally hate they remind me of like mary jane's that you would see like catholic mm -hmm. schoolgirls wearing um but buckle brogues are a thing they are very very basically usually reserved for like super formal like black mm -hmm. tie or white type type of events um there's also you know you can wear combat boots or hiking boots you can wear sneakers. You can wear regular wingtips, you know, basically in lieu of ghillie brogues a lot of times. So it really just depends on, you know, A, do you have extra money that you want to wear a fancy pair of shoes like ghillie brogues? Or do you have wingtips that'll, they're good enough, they'll get you by and they're already broken in and comfortable and you love them? Or am I going to be running around the shop or fixing sewing machines and how am I dressed with the rest of the outfit? That is... That will dictate my footwear, you know, what I'm wearing up top, what I'm wearing on my head more than, you know, anything else. Okay. I feel safe then because I was planning on going hiking boots at the Highland Games or just something yeah. like that. Because there's a lot of walking yeah, and I and I when I saw the brogues, I thought, man, I don't want to walk around all day in those. They don't look comfortable. Some are more comfortable than others. Um, okay. This is this is not meant to sound like a product pitch, but they're we have like like Piper Gilly Brogues are specifically designed with 
thicker rubber heels. They're more, more comfortable insoles. They're a little mm-hmm. bit more, they're meant to be marched in all day long and not have your feet kill you at the end of the day versus like leather bottom dress shoes or dress or leather bottom gilly brogues. Um, they're going to be more uncomfortable if you're wearing them out and standing on your feet on concrete all day. Yes. So it's, yeah, it, it, combat boots or hiking boots can be fine. You want to, you don't want to have to suffer that much for your art. <laughs> you you want to look the part, but at the same time, you want to be dressed appropriately. Now, if I'm wearing, let's say, a, a, I want to be a little bit fancier and it's cool and I want to go to the Highland Games and it's going to be, you know, upper 60s and I want to wear my tweed jacket and vest. Maybe, maybe you do wear Gillibergs or wingtips, but you get a pair with maybe rubber bottoms versus another because it will look better versus like you just threw on an old ratty pair of work boots with a dress with a, you know, a tweed jacket or something like that. Sure. And, you know, I forgot to ask you too, when we, when I, before I ask about shoes, but, uh, with Sporans, there's a, a mixed Sporan also, there's the day Sporan, which is typically leather. And then there's the four or the dress Sporan, which is usually a fur with the three tassels. But isn't, is there a, there's one that's kind of a hybrid, right? It's kind of, it looks like yep. a day Sporan, but it has a kind of a fur front. Is that, what, what's yep. the, where does that fall in the line of, or where do you, where do you wear that? It's, uh, it depends on who you ask. The what okay. you're referring to is what's called the semi-dress sporin, where you're sure. you're 100 correct. It is the same sideways D shape um, of a day sporin, but the front panel down underneath the tassels is going to be fur. Now, it's it depends on who you ask whether it's an abomination or a great way to split the difference and only get one sporin. So, it was those started appearing. I want to say in the 1950s ish. Um, there was kind of a, a an, an earlier version of it that's slightly different, which had, uh, which is like a, a slightly fancier day sporin, but it kind of evolved into a a you know, the tassels, like the metal tassels and the metal um, bells that go over top of the fur on a dress sporin. Um, you know, whack those on the front of a day sporin, slap mm-hmm. some fur in the front, and we're going to call it a semi dress. So you can wear it for fancy stuff or for day wear. Well, it's not really – it's not great for day wear because it looks like you're too dressy, and it's yeah. not quite appropriate enough <laughs> for formal. So it kind of – it splits the difference, but not great for either yeah. one. Okay. Yeah, it's neither 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 formal nor casual. Yep. I'm assuming that uh, animal head sporins are also out. I wasn't. I was not going to do that, but I've seen those, and I'm, I'm <clears throat> genuinely interested in these. Sure, not those in are what's way. called. Those are what are called either full mask or head-on sporins. Um, they are people tend to reserve those for mm-hmm. dressier events, simply because they cost so damn much. I mean, oh, okay. for for a a, a head-on sporin or a, a full mask sporin. You're, you know, you're, you're involving not only a sporin maker, but also a taxidermist. Right. So those typically run like $600 and up. So if you're spending 600 bucks on just, (laughs) just the sporin, just the bag in the front, you're, you're not going to want to risk spilling beer on it. 
You're not going to want to risk, you know, grease dripping on it and things that you're typically going to see a Highland Games. But, you know, if it's maybe a, a nice burn supper or if it's a St. Andrew's dinner or some or a wedding or something like that, where you really want to stand out and be the, the king peacock in a room of peacocks, then you break out the head-ons born. A question about those. I'm a big fan of the head-ons born, especially like a nice badger or a fox. Are mm-hmm. there gradations of formality within <clears throat> the animal? No, no, it's okay. just it's um, in the same way that for a regular dress sporin, it's you know it's not seal is better than bovine is less than uh, you know fox is better than bad. It's there's no hierarchy within it. It's it really is just personal preference. It's the fact that it's fur for a dress sporin. The fact that it's fur makes it a formal sporin. For a head-on sporin, the fact that there's a <laughs> A pair of beady eyes staring back at you. That's what makes it a head-on sport. Thank you. Those yeah. are that is like the one thing that I really do wish we could share over with our female compatriots in Scottish heritage wear. I would love a head-on badger or anything. I think it's super cute. <laughs> um let's let's go on and we'll ask you to start a couple of last questions, Rocky. Um sure. Well, I think actually the next question one is, is one that Scott has to ask. It probably would pass my anatomy. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so it, this is the, the ever so important question that maybe no one's willing to ask in public, but what is the right <laughs> thing to wear underneath your, your, your kilt? The, uh, <laughs> my, my quip answer is why are you asking? You're looking for a date. <laughs> uh, the, I, in fairness, I stole that from Eric. Um, the, my co-host on the show, the, um, it's not wearing underwear is kind of the, the, the elephant in the room. It's everyone, you know, thinks, oh, you, you know, you're wearing, you're not allowed to wear underwear. You're not a true Scotsman. You're not properly wearing the kilt. Or if you're wearing underwear, it's a skirt. It's not a kilt. <sighs> It depends on it, like use common sense. There, there's right. even an article uh, that the uh, it's on the Scottish Tartans Authority. I think my friend Brian Wilton wrote it. Um, talking about essentially this misnomer, saying you know, oh no, you don't wear underwear underneath the kilt. You know, bollocks. No, it's not true. You can wear underwear underneath the kilt. When you rent a kilt in Scotland, they beg you. <laughs> Some places actually <laughs> provide a pair of like funny type underwear and give it to you with the rental because God knows they don't want to get back, you know, and have to deal with what's, you know, not being underwear being worn underneath the rental kilt. And frankly speaking, and the way that they uh, encourage people to wear underwear is they will say, hey, do you really want to wear nothing underneath a kilt where you know other men have not (laughs) worn underwear underneath this kilt? A lot of guys that will stop them dead in the tracks. Um, so I, I always say it this way. Look, if you're, if you want to go au naturel and you know, you want to be regimental and you want to wear no underwear underneath the kilt, fine, have at it, but it, it make sure you're not going over to grandmom's house, grandmom's house with the low couch and, and you're, you're flashing your family, the twig and berries. You want to be appropriate for the situation. If you're going somewhere where there's going to be a lot of kids and you're not wearing underwear, don't kneel down. Like there's, there's things that you have to concern yourself in a kilt that you don't have to worry about if you're wearing pants. And that's not even touching on the hygienic thing where you're going to have to clean the garment more often if you're not wearing underwear underneath it. So 
myself, have I gone, you know, in my mid twenties when I'm going out to bars and I'm trying to meet women and I'm trying to you know, be the fun outgoing guy, and just having a party kind of atmosphere. Sure. I wanted the attention at that point. And it's a, a, a conversation topic, if nothing else. Now that I'm old and curmudgeonly and crotchety and I have a wife, and it, it's I'm going to wear <laughs> I'm going to wear underwear because I don't care about the attention and I'm more annoyed by those types of interactions than anything. So it just yeah. depends on where you are in life, what you want to wear underneath your kilt. And it's nobody's business, and this is not you know meant to dig at you, Scott. But it's nobody's oh, no, no, business, no. but your own. What you're wearing underneath your clothes, because yeah. if you flip it, if I walked up to any random woman <laughs> and said, or any random person, doesn't even have to be a woman, it's like, what are you wearing underneath that? You know, it, it's not. It, 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 you wouldn't do that. I don't understand sure. why people think it's okay to do with the kilt. Outside of it's the fun bit of shtick. Um, well, that's what it's that's what it seems yeah. like though. That every time I talk about a kilt, it's I teach high schoolers, and so I'm sure it has to do <laughs> with their age also. But if I ever talk about kilts, you know, that's that's it's just something that that is inevitably will be asked. Like, oh, what do you wear under a kilt? You know, and it's like, uh, well, and and what you said about just hygiene makes the most sense. Like, I'd never really thought about that, but. I wouldn't want to wear a kilt. If you were renting a kilt, I would I would hate to rent a kilt that someone had worn uh sans underwear uh before. So uh hard pass on that. <laughs> no, I'll be wearing I, underwear with mine. I I will say this. I will give a little bit, a little bit of a of leeway to people who ask the question because there could also there it could also be a matter of they wanna they wanna talk to you. When you're wearing a kilt, yeah. that's different. That's something that they don't see every single day. So they're, they want to come up. They want to interact with you. They want to have some kind of icebreaker, but they're not sure what to say. So that may just be their, <laughs> are, are you wearing underwear? And that's their their subtle way of saying like, hey, I know that's a kilt. I know yeah. you're not supposed to wear underwear. That's a thing I've heard about the kilt. This is my way to start talking to you. <laughs> but it's not it's not always received <laughs> on the other end in the same manner, or it's once you've heard it a thousand times, it's one of those like, okay, I get it. Um, but it's just the way, or, or somebody walking up to you and saying like, it's, it could be akin to somebody walking up and saying, Oh, are you Scottish? And, Oh, are you from Scotland? And, and just wanting to start to talk to you because they want to interact with that guy who's wearing that thing. Yeah. And that, and that seems to be, I don't know if it was, because of Braveheart or for whatever reason, but that seems to be what it is. Yep. It's just like, that's the question that people think of automatically when they see a kilt is that's what you're supposed to go find out if they're wearing <laughs> underwear or not, or at least that's how you, that's the icebreaker. I think that is a, it does make a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. So well, um, Rocky, I don't go ahead. Lee. I was just going to say, Rocky, thank you, thank you for your, for your candor in that question and many other sensitive questions we know that your youtube channel goes even more in depth into these topics and and on the specifics of wearing a kilt and making kilts uh do you want to share us where where people can find you if they want to learn more sure um we have youtube channel just uh google you know usa kilts youtube and we'll pop up uh we have a show that we do once a month on live we can't we we uh, broadcast it live to facebook we broadcast it live to youtube twitch and tiktok as well most of the time um and then we, we literally just answer questions. So 
you know, mm-hmm. you can jump in the comments, ask a question, and we have somebody sitting on the other side of the screen who's reading questions to us during that show. We also produce um, like content and heritage and history pieces on our YouTube. We do interviews and stuff like this. You know, usually I'm on the other side, but we do interviews like this. We just started a, a new pillar of content doing that. Um, we have Facebook page. We have an Instagram page. We're even on TikTok. So we're kind of anywhere where you can consume media. We are trying to be there, you know, blabbing about kilts. So I'm glad your communications degree came in handy after all. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, you know, I'm real thankful that you're doing that too. And I think that, you know, what you said earlier that, you know, Americans and the diaspora were so far detached from Scotland that, um, you know, we don't have the access necessarily. We don't, we don't grow up with that tradition. I didn't. Um, and so it is nice to see you guys out there putting good information out online and on social media and, and every place you can think of. I think that's really cool that you guys are doing the the live Q and a sessions also. Um, Thank you. but you know, I think it's, I think it's great that you're doing that and we're, we're trying to do something, you know, like that with, with clan Carmichael and putting good information out, you know, about kilts and about, you know, Scottish history and in particular the Carmichael history. So, um, you know, from, from our clan to you guys at USA kilts, we really appreciate you guys putting out all the good information and, uh, helping people look good when they show up to Highland games. <laughs> We're doing our best. And I'll, I will, I will, you know, give you a pat on the back as well. It, this, this whole thing, you know, whether it's, you know, clan related, whether it's culture related, whether it's kilt related, it all boils down to community and building the community and making sure that people have a voice, people have aspect or have uh, access to the knowledge and that we are memorializing the knowledge and passing it on. Cause if we don't pass it on, if we don't get younger people involved in it, if we don't, you know, push the ball forward, so to speak, it will get lost and people will, you know, disconnect with that. And after you skip a few generations, mm-hmm. it just kind of goes away. So what you are doing, what we are doing is very important. And this is not meant to be a pat on the back. This is a, this is the reason we're doing it is to build the community and to allow people to have access to these things and to express themselves and find their own way within it as much as anything else. Yeah. I love it. I appreciate it. That's awesome. And, uh, and I appreciate the, uh, the compliment to us too. I know it's, you know, Leah and I got involved in Clan Carmichael a few years ago around the same time and and being uh what do you think Leah maybe we're quite a bit younger than the average uh Clan Carmichael yeah. member but we wanted and to bring good 35 some 35 average years. Yeah. We wanted to bring some new energy and new ideas into it and so I appreciate the compliments from you guys too. Yeah. So that you, means a lot to us. You need that. The the thing that I find is that a lot of people get interested in their heritage a little bit in their mm-hmm. mid-20s, maybe, when they're getting married or if they've grown up with it. But a lot of people start getting interested in their heritage once their parents get old or die, unfortunately. And then that knowledge and that family history is lost forever. So getting in, getting involved in the heritage and getting younger people involved matters so much more because you can get more out of it the younger you get into it. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds right. I, I mean, that, those times line up perfectly too with, with me when I first got into Carmichael and I got into it a little bit in my mid twenties and it kind of, you know, it took a backseat through, you know, college and graduate school. And, and then later on kind of, 
you know, reemerged as something I was really interested in. So, yep. um, but yeah, I appreciate it. And again, for any listeners that are wanting to learn more, uh, check out USA Kilts on online, on YouTube, and on all the social media outlets. So Rocky, yep. Rager, I appreciate your time with us today. And uh, thanks so much. Okay. Not a problem. Have a good day, guys. All right. Thanks, thank Rocky. you. Thanks again to Rocky Rager of USA Kilts for joining us today for such a fun and informative conversation. Be sure to visit usakilts.com to find a new kilt or any accessories you might need and find more on their USA Kilts and Celtic Traditions YouTube channel if you want to learn more about kilts or kilt wearing. And you're also sure to be entertained in the process. Rocky and his co-host Eric are great, and there's no one out there putting out better information about kilts than USA Kilts. If you haven't already, please be sure to subscribe to the podcast and to share it with other Carmichaels or anyone else that you think might enjoy our shows. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and the Podbean app. Episodes are available also on the Clan Carmichael USA website under the Present tab at the top of the homepage. If you like what we're doing, please leave a positive review. Your reviews help to promote the show and make it easier for other Carmichaels to find the show. So until next time, to your prey. See you all soon.